you know, getting that sentimental attachment to to the family that he's working for, and then you know is forced to to do bad things. Dave, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts? What's with a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be here. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Alright, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week, the week that Logan comes out, we're taking a look at a movie that the director has stated that he's used as kind of a template for the look of the film. So we're taking a look at Shane, uh, the Western from the 1950s. So in order to do that, because I just wanted to get as meta as meta as possible, I invited Shane to talk about Shane. Shane from the War Machine vs. Warhorse podcast. So thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem. Uh, any chance I get to Inception an episode, right. uh, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> and really the reason was that uh, I think Western is a genre at this point that's uh, – I think people are into the, the kind of new Western. But if you ask a bunch of people, like, are you into old Westerns? People have this blank look on their face. Uh, and you are one of the few people who I know really appreciates the genre. So I thought, who better to have on this show? Yeah, well, I mean, we grew up in you know eastern Kentucky, myself and, and Mike both from the podcast. You just grew up in a Western. That's Yeah, basically, like, you know, cable TV came a little bit later to us, and my dad just had a ton of, like, John Wayne VHS tapes. It was like, right, it was Disney or John Wayne when I would go to watch a movie at home. Uh, so, you know, I just kind of grew up watching re- Westerns. Nice. Awesome. So um, before we get into things, why don't you uh, tell us about War Machine vs. War Horse. Not like people don't know about it already, but tell us about that show and then give us a couple movie recommendations. Yeah, I mean, so War Machine vs. War Horse is a pretty nonsensical podcast where we talk about uh, men's hair more often than not. Um, In theory, we try to uh, pick a current film and compare two older films based on a similar theme for the week. Uh, but yeah, you uh, you can find that at, at War Machine Horse on Twitter or uh, War Machine versus War Horse on Facebook. Nice. And as as far as uh, movie recommendations, we'll we'll keep one kind of in that classic Western genre and a very similar feel to Shane. Uh, and it's actually a John Wayne movie, uh, Angel and the Bad Man. Okay. With uh, I believe it's Gail Russell that's in that with him, and it's it's kind of a, the same situation. You get this former slash current gunfighter taken in by homesteaders uh, in that specific movie, I believe it's Quakers. And, you know, they have trouble of their own and, you know, the the gunfighter, you know, with the heart of gold kind of, you know, does the right thing to try to help the homesteaders. But uh, really, it's one of the, one of his first big hits, I guess, that kind of made his name more prominent. Uh, and then much more recent uh one that came out and it's it's not even close to a western but it always had that kind of feel to me when i watched it and almost immediately fell in this love with this movie and it was a uh, 2004's man on fire with denzel oh, washington yeah sure um and i'm sure most people if they're listening to movie podcasts it's recent enough they've probably seen it but it, it's it felt like a modern take on a western where you have that kind of gunfighter figure uh you know getting that sentimental attachment to to the family that he's working for and then, you know, is forced to, to do bad things, Dave, and, uh, but for the right reasons. So it, it, it kind of endears him to the audience. Yeah, you talking about that actually makes me think that in some ways it almost feel like, feels like the action genre has taken over what Westerns used to be. The kind of like one man or one character kind of against the world, like in these kind of overcoming these odds. It feels like that used to be the territory of the Western genre. Now, like since, since movies like Die Hard and on, it's just been the straight kind of action film. Yeah, technology kind of outpaced throwing a stick of dynamite out of your chuck wagon. There was only right. only so far you can go with that. So, right. uh, Horses only go so fast. I mean, we gotta we gotta yeah. up the ante constantly. Could you imagine Die Hard if all Bruce Willis had was a six shooter? Like it just it wouldn't have been the same. <laughs> Would have been a short movie. That's. Yeah. <laughs> would not have ended well. All right. Um, so at this point, we're going to take a break. I'll talk about community because that's our that's our theme for this episode is kind of the importance of community and how that plays a part uh, in Shane. And we will we will, of course, talk about that at the end. But uh, so we'll take a quick break. I'll talk about that. And then we'll bring you back to talk about your namesake. Absolutely. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature 
of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to abfilmreview.com for episodes, or following on Twitter or Facebook at The Last New Wave. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. So today we're talking about community and the importance of it. So in order to do that, I don't think I have to define what a community is so much. So we're going to talk about, to start off with, community psychology. So community psychology is a branch of psychology that studies our context within communities and the wider society and the relationships that we have to communities and society. People who are community psychologists try to understand the quality of life of people within groups or organizations or institutions like like these communities and societies. And the real aim is to enhance the quality of life through collaborative research and action. So it kind of started back in the 70s. Uh, Rappaport, uh, who started this in 1977, he discusses the perspective of community psychology as more of an ecological perspective on the fit of the person and the environment. And that should be the focus of the study and action instead of making this attempt to change the personality of the person or to change the environment when the individual is seen as, quote unquote, having a problem. Community psychology grew out of something called the community mental health movement, but has evolved pretty dramatically as People incorporated their own understandings of political structures and other contexts into perspectives on working with their clients. So in terms of the history, in the 1950s and 60s, lots of factors contributed to the beginning of this movement. Some of them include a shift away from socially conservative practices in healthcare and psychology into this really progressive period that was concerned with public health and prevention and social change, particularly after World War II, and social psychologists growing interest in racial and religious prejudice, poverty, and lots of other social issues. There's also a perceived need of larger-scale mental mental illness treatment for veterans, which really helped uh, burgeon this this movement of community psychology. And psychologists started questioning the value of psychotherapy by itself in treating big numbers of people with mental illness. And the last thing really is the development of community mental health centers and the, the deinstitutionalization of people with mental illnesses into their communities. So in 1965, there was something called the Swampscott conference. And a bunch of psychologists met to discuss the future of community mental health, as well as to discuss the issue of being involved in the problems of mental health instead of the community as a whole. And it was basically the birthplace of community psychology. And they published a report on the conference, and it called for community psychologists to be political activists, agents of social change, and to be a participant in this and not just kind of conceptualizing the issues. Okay, so I won't go into all of community community psychology because that would be a really, really long episode. But let's go over a couple things. Like because these community psychologists often work on social issues, they what they're working towards more than anything is positive social change. And actually, like, yes, this is a Western and set way back when, but really that's what these homesteaders are trying to do is to create a better life for themselves and to get these kind of bad people out of out of this situation. So within community psychology, you'll find something called first order and second order change. First order change is positively changing the individuals in a setting in an attempt to fix a problem. And second order change is attending to systems and structures involved with the problem to adjust the person and environment fit. So as an example, consider um, poverty and homelessness. A first order change would be to offer shelter to one homeless person. And a second order change would be to address issues in policy regarding affordable housing and available employment. There's lots of goals uh, within community psychology. One of them is empowerment. The whole idea is to empower individuals and communities that have been marginalized by society. And another is social justice. Community psychologists often have to be advocates for equality and policies that allow for the well-being of all people, especially marginalized populations. Also, individual wellness. Individual wellness is the physical and psychological well-being of all people. Research within community psychology focuses on methods to increase this individual wellness, particularly through prevention and, as we mentioned earlier, second-order change. They're also looking for collaboration and community strength. It's not just like, oh, we're going to fix this as psychologists, but the whole community has to come together. So collaboration with community members to construct, research, and 
make projects happen within community psychology makes it a really applied field, which is I think is something is missing from a lot of fields within psychology is like, oh, that's a really nice thought and a really nice experiment, but that doesn't really work in real life. Not so much here. So by allowing communities to use this knowledge to contribute to projects in this collaborative, equal manner, the process of research not only can help them, but it can also feel empowering to these citizens. And it requires an ongoing relationship between the researcher and the community before the research begins and all the way till after it's over. And the last real value I want to go over is diversity. So which we talked about in a previous episode when we um, when we did our episode on the imitation game leading up to Hidden Figures, we talked about the importance of diversity. And Rappaport, who I mentioned earlier, includes diversity as a defining aspect of this field, calling research to be done for the benefit of these diverse populations in order to gain equality and justice. And this value can be seen through much of the research done with communities, regardless of their ethnicity, culture, sexual orientation, uh, socioeconomic status, gender, and age. So that becomes really important because it's not about just helping one group of people, whether that be a group that has privilege or a group that doesn't. It's about helping entire communities, which cannot just be boiled down to one segment. So when you go through the literature about community, something you'll hear a lot is social cohesion, like how people work well together or not so well together within communities. So this study that came out in 2007 was about social cohesion or lack thereof in diverse communities. And what this study wanted to do was to explore the relationship between new and established communities in two ethnically diverse neighborhoods, because again, part of community psychology is diverse neighborhoods. And I think even in this movie, like, yes, you're going to see a lot of white folks it is an older movie but as far as from where they came from it was probably pretty diverse because they were all trying to start a new life but in this study they were drawing on discussion groups and one-to-one interviews with 60 uh ordinary residents they say from white british somali black caribbean and multiple heritage backgrounds so here are the key points Both deprivation and disadvantage plays a pivotal role in neighborhood relationships. So racial tensions were often driven by struggles for resources like employment and housing. And respondents talked about the, quote, unfairness of this allocation of resources. And intergenerational tensions reduced social cohesion as older residents often referred to a lack of respect by young people and saw young people's relationships as the cause of ethnic tensions. In fact, young people's changing alliances and divisions were actually shaped by gender and poverty issues. Now, the nature and extent of residents' social interactions were pretty wide-ranging. Young people and those who had been in the neighborhood longer were more likely to have mixed social networks. But the more recently arrived groups, such as the Somali groups tended to have fewer social connections with the other ethnic groups. So generally speaking, a person's social interactions are shaped by a lot of factors, including age, gender, migration history, and ethnicity. Now, things like sports and music and employment would enable interactions across communities, while barriers to cohesion included obviously issues with language, perceptions of cultural difference, whether they're there or not, stereotyping, lack of employment, fear of crime, and racial harassment. Now, Population turnover, as in any study, makes it really difficult for service providers to give the appropriate support and to be able to contribute it to people who are feeling negatively about their neighborhood. But a sense of community was identified only in small pockets within the neighborhoods, often where populations were the most stable. So the more people come and go, the less community that there is, which makes perfect sense. People's sense of belonging to this local neighborhood resulted from a complex mix of a lot of things, emotional factors, material factors, many many that felt emotionally attached to the neighborhood, but they also felt drawn to other areas that seemed to offer a better environment for families and greater chances for upward social mobility. So basically what they found here is in order to promote social cohesion, which is good for everyone in the neighborhood, the research has shown the need to engage with established as well as new communities. More institutional level responses are required to tackle these social divisions that work against cohesion. It's really important to have local grassroots projects because they can make an important contribution in facilitating the connections between different groups. Like an institution can only do so much if there's if you're not involving the people in the neighborhood, it doesn't really help. So for example, um, if you combined groups of older and younger people and young people and women from different ethnic backgrounds, this could help to foster positive engagement and relationships. 
service providers and community and volunteer organizations could benefit from a lot more multi-agency working. Um, so like if you just come in to try and help um, with crime or if you just come in to try and help with employment, that's not really going to help. But if you have those groups work together to create a service for this community, that can really make a difference. And they did a couple case studies and th- in the analysis, they found that these case studies reinforces uh, the the importance of the twin elements of social cohesion. So eroding these disparities and inequalities and and also nurturing the social infrastructure of these neighborhoods and to make those stronger and to make uh, to make these ties kind of rely on one another. So there's a lot in here. Like there's there's a lot that the neighborhood can do and there's a lot that the infrastructure can do. Um, the community at large, the society at large. But if those two things and those many moving parts don't work together, then you're going to have more of this feeling of difference and of inequality. And then that's going to decrease that social cohesion. And it got me thinking about the movie a lot. It's one of the things that the community really has is they know they can really rely on each other. But if you take a look at the the kind of outlaws and that whole society, then they're coming in and kind of from – from underneath kind of destroying this community and it it takes another outsider coming in to try and help fix this problem. And that's it for the psychological section. We are going to take a break and then bring back Shane to talk about Shane. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the following films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on the Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right. Um, so we usually at this point kind of when we talk about the movie, we talk about our history with it. My history is nothing. Uh, I'd never seen this movie before. It's one of those that it's it was an interesting watch because I knew at least part of how it ended. I think the the little kid saying Shane, come back, Shane, like that is such a part of of kind of movie history that it's in every one of those. Like when they make those uh, those kind of those video clips of like all the great scenes, that's usually in there. So I knew that was going to happen. Uh, but in terms of Westerns, it's interesting because I was kind of raised – on westerns but more like western tv shows like gunsmoke and that kind of stuff okay. that, that's yeah. the stuff my dad was my dad was also really in to john wayne movies so like i'm sure that if i went and watched a bunch of john wayne movies i'd be like oh i have seen this before because it was just always on but what about you what's your history with westerns and your history with shane in particular well i'm, I'm gonna throw out a little trivia for you here dave that All i'll right. never hear the end of if mike listens to this episode <laughs> uh, i was named after this western uh, oh. that's how i got my middle name <laughs> Okay, uh, so I, I guess my familiarity goes all the way back to the day I was Pre-birth. born to some That's, extent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I've seen this movie. I've lost count of how many times I've seen it over the years, and it's one that, like, if you don't appreciate the nostalgia of it, like graphically, I mean, the plot's pretty straightforward. Um, you know, you're not going to watch this and be blown away by cinematography or anything like that. Right. You're, you're, you're solely watching it to kind of appreciate the origin of a genre to some extent, because this is one of the first big Westerns that, you know, got critical acclaim. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was back in back in the 1950s. So this is this is probably one of the older movies I mean, that we talked about on this show. So we've talked about, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and Citizen Kane, like the big ones. But in terms of. In terms of age, this is this is definitely up there, and I think I think it shows, but I don't think it shows necessarily in a bad way. I don't. I mean, we'll talk about this with production value, but I don't think there's a bunch of scenes where you kind of roll your eyes at how fake everything looks or how ridiculous it is. For the time, they were definitely you could see the money on the screen for the 1950s in this movie. Oh yeah, for sure. Even like your your saloon fighting scenes mm-hmm. where it's just fisticuffs among men it's uh it, it, it's not terrible like you can watch some old movies and you're like oh that is horrible pulling punches and like the exaggerated right. head throws and like i mean there's some of that in this but nothing that you like you said you don't roll your eyes it doesn't take you out of the movie like this was this had to be really high quality for you know the 1950s right yeah, absolutely. So speaking of uh, kind of the look of the movie, so this is uh, this is directed by George Stevens, who also directed uh, Giant with James Dean and A Place in the Sun and Diary of Anne Frank. So this is someone um, who's pretty well thought of. So what did you think of the direction of the film? 
I actually really like it. Uh, I, I like the fact that they don't sort of force the protagonist down your throat at first. Right. Like he's he's almost the anti-hero until you get what three quarters of the way through the movie, and you're not sure whether or not uh, you know you're pulling for Joe Starrett, who's played by Van Heflin, mm-hmm. or there's a, a lot of different places that you could sort of hitch your wagon to. We'll say as you go throughout this movie on who you're really pulling for. Uh, and I think that's really clever and something that if is not handled correctly can really backfire on a director. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, one of the things that I noticed as I was watching the movie and it's kind of twofold is one, you know, we have, you know, our, our main character of Shane kind of come into town at the very beginning of the movie played by Alan Ladd. And I thought it was such an interesting casting choice to have Alan Ladd here because he doesn't really fit the profile of a cowboy on film. You know, he's, you know, he's kind of, he's, he's got the blonde hair. He's a little bit shorter than just about everyone in the film. So you kind of like when he first shows up, it's a little bit hard in those fight sequences to take him seriously. But because of Alan Ladd's portrayal, I think it really works. But I thought it was really kind of gutsy to cast him. And when he first shows up, he doesn't look like a cowboy either. He's just kind of dressed like a normal guy. There's not like a, there's not a John Wayne shot. There's not a, you know, there's not a uh, a Gary Cooper moment here. It's just like he looks kind of like a normal guy, and I like the kind of difference here that we don't usually get in most westerns. Yeah, he's not. I guess you'll say he's not a larger than life figure, right? I know when a lot of people think of John Wayne, most people go straight to the Searchers, and you have like that really iconic silhouette of him in the doorway, right? Or you know, Gary Cooper walking down the street in high noon, like you were talking about. And uh, Alan Ladd, he's he's not a menacing figure. He's right. he's your every man's. He's he was the Tom Cruise of his generation, is what he was. Dave, <laughs> short was and striking. That's yeah. He was undersized, <laughs> but by God, he had spunk. He was going to get the job done. Um, and yeah, it's just it 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 makes him easier to root for because if mm. you have you know a John Wayne or a you know to pull from Gunsmoke here a James Arness, if you've got a six three a six four guy coming in there, it's it doesn't make it as much of the sort of the the little guy rising up to defeat the cattle barons it's like oh well they had a ringer that doesn't count right. uh, of course yeah. they're going to win <laughs> yeah that's very true i so i so i like that was there and you also mentioned like kind of not knowing um kind of really how tough he was and really what side he was on until 3 quarters of the way through the movie there's a particular shot when uh when he kind of first shows up, when he shows up kind of at the door of our other main character's house and he's completely shrouded in shadow and i think that's the moment we kind of realize kind of how dangerous shane is and i thought the director used you know light and lack thereof to really hammer that point home yeah i mean it's it's not really foreshadowing but you get a you get that feeling like that his past has kind of come out like, you know, he's taking his mask off and like, okay, now, you know, I kind of need to assert myself here and just let them know who they're dealing with. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a really, really good shot. And I, I don't want to say I hate it on the cinematography, but, uh, that is one of the scenes that really stands out in that department for this film. Right. I also felt like there's a, the kind of opening shot of this movie is really memorable too. You, you're kind of introduced to this, this kid, uh, in this family who's, you know, taking aim with this gun at a deer. And I thought it was a really interesting choice to have, you know, I, I felt like one of the themes I thought about other than community is this theme of innocence and how Shane wants this kid to be able to keep his innocence. Like he, he kind of, you know, waffles back and forth about teaching him how to shoot. You know, he doesn't want to put him in these dangerous situations. And I thought that first shot of him like not pulling the trigger was a really interesting way to start a western usually don't if you're going to start a western usually you're going to start with a with an action beat you know you're going to start with gun smoke uh but instead here we have a child holding a gun that he probably shouldn't have and deciding not to pull the trigger yeah uh and and it kind of it's it's funny because you as much I'm, I'm just gonna throw it out here i hate the kid in this movie well yeah the kids, i don't i don't it's know like it's like every voice. bad child performance ever all rolled into one it's yeah and, rough and i think it is the voice because this this little boy no fault of his own has a very high-pitched nails on the chalkboard kind of tone and everything he says is very needy anyway and like yeah. it's just the way it was written. It's it's not that he's delivering it that way. It's intended to be that way. But when you combine it with the voice, it's just like, oh my god, kid! Like enough! Like go back and like, into the get out of the saloon, so to speak. Go back in there with the <laughs> women folks, so I don't have to listen to this anymore. Um, but they do do an excellent job of giving him 
a character arc without a lot of dialogue. Um, Thank God because, for that. <laughs> yeah, because you know you you talk about the opening scene with the deer, and then after he's introduced to Shane, there's a very apparent fascination with Shane and his gun, right? Uh, shown through how the director chose to you know frame the shots and you know cut to the kid and you know back to just the gun hanging on Shane's hip. Uh, and you get a scene maybe halfway through where the the kid wakes up, um, and he's he's he he's taking aim at the sort of the hired hands the ranchers rancher has sent over, uh, and like getting ready to shoot them from the uh, stables or whatever if mm-hmm. something should arise with his wooden gun at this point, <laughs> uh, and you know asking his father questions as they work. Uh, or you can Shane teach me to shoot? Not can you teach me to shoot? Because clearly Shane must be better at this than you, because his gun's shinier. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I totally agree uh, about the performance of the kid. I think, you know, as much as we complain about child performances now, I think they actually weirdly have improved. Because uh, I think anytime I watch an older movie with a child main character, it's like I just gotta grit my teeth and get through it. Like, please, someone make that child stop talking by any means necessary. And this 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 performance is uh is no exception. Uh, but that actually kind of leads us uh, pretty nicely into the uh, the acting section. So we talked a little bit about Alan Ladd who played Shane. Uh, and one thing when kind of doing my very minimal kind of Wikipedia IMDb level research is there's a scene late in the movie this really heartfelt scene between shane and this kid and apparently the kid kept grinning and laughing and making faces and it was a really moving scene like alan ladd is crying during the scene he's really trying to push through it and apparently the kid's father was on set and he went over to him between between takes and said you know if you don't get your kid under control i'm gonna hit him with a brick so uh (laughs) i instantly gained a whole lot of respect for alan ladd right right as i read that i was like you know this performance just got just a little bit better but i do think this i think he's i think alan ladd has to carry a lot of this a lot of this film he's the one with a serious arc the other characters not that they aren't fully formed characters they are but from script level stuff not a lot is asked of them yeah i mean and even uh not to hate on Van Heflin here, but he he's kind of the everyman in most movies that he plays. Right. Um, even one of his other bigger hits, also a Western in 310 to Yuma, the original, uh, there's not a lot that relies on him. That's more of a, a Glenn Ford sort of role that carries that original film. Uh, and it's, it's a very similar sort of pairing in this movie that, you know, they put him next to, you know, your token, you know, uh, I'll, I'll say anti-hero because I don't think Glenn Ford's even a straight-up bad guy in the original 310 to Yuma. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they don't ask him to do anything. They they put it all on that that other character. And I, and I can't help but feeling like if this movie was ever updated or they tried to remake it or whatever, that there would be a, a lot of dialogue added to the wife. Yes. And that, and that relationship would get fleshed out a whole lot more. Because um, at the end of the movie, you know, when after he's had the, the fist fight with, Uh, Van Heflin, so he doesn't go to the shootout. Uh, You know, she asks him, are you doing this just for me, Shane? And he's like, for you. And there's this really long, like, dramatic theater pause. (laughs) He's like, and then for everybody else. And, you know, he throws a couple specific names in there. But But really. Yeah. (laughs) That's something if they wanted to, you know, not make one person carry a film, uh, they, they would have to flesh that out more. But Jack Palance does a really good job with uh not any dialogue at all, hardly of kind of yes. carrying his weight and, and giving you that extra presence that you need. Yeah, absolutely. So um, kind of the two people, two people who brought up uh, Jean Arthur, who played Joe's wife, Mary, and I thought she was really good, uh, especially with that minimal dialogue. I think you, you got a really good look at her relationship with all three of these other main characters um, with, with Joe, with her kid and with Shane. Um, and like you said, it, it probably would have been better if those relationships were fleshed out with dialogue. But I thought she kind of every scene she was in, even when she's in scenes with Alan Ladd, like she's one of those people you just want to look at. Like she's she feels like she has a lot going on beneath the surface as far as her acting goes. And I, I really appreciated kind of just her presence on screen during the whole movie. And Jack Palance, I think that's the one thing uh, as I was watching this movie that I I messaged you about. It's just Jack Palance is horrifying. Like he's just in this movie. He's barely in it. He's in like two or three scenes. And when he first shows up, I mean, there's something about about the way his face is formed. Like he looks like a skeleton, especially yeah. in this black and white kind of era. Like I was just like I kept looking at him like 
there's no way I could ever accept a person like this as a hero. Like he was made to be a villain and he really played it to the hilt here. And I loved his performance. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I had the exact same note that you did. It's all about his facial structure. Like from the moment that camera pans over there, it's like the angular chin and the cheekbones. It's like, well, he's just an asshole. Right. Like there's, there's no (laughs) matter what he says, this guy is not a nice guy. Um, and it's funny because I'm sure like most people, you know, watching this, like if they hear Jack Palance, they're like, oh, well, he was that cantankerous old man on City Slickers. Right. And it's like, no, you need to go back, watch some early Jack Palance. Like, Way scarier. Later. Yeah. yeah. Way scarier than than that or than him playing uh, a character in Tim Burton's Batman like this. Like, yep. honestly, he could have just showed up for that one scene and left the film and I probably would have remembered him more than anyone else. Like he just, he has that screen presence and he has that perfect look for the, especially for the Western villain. It just really works. Yeah. I mean, he, he is the iconic black cat. Like yep. he just fits that to a T. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's talk about uh, the script a little bit. Um, so there's, there's a couple things that, that I noticed, uh, that I, that I really liked. I like that, you know, when you introduce this character, of course, the movie's called Shane. I love that one of his first lines is just, you can call me Shane. And from then on, you know, like, okay, this is who we're following. Even if we're not sure if we like him or not, this is who's important here. And, and the way Alan Ladd delivers that line is also fantastic. Uh, but the other thing I liked is there is a whole set of scenes at like an Independence Day celebration. And I thought that was like a really good kind of visual cue to what this movie is about and what these people are fighting for. Because, you know, given the situation they're in, it would be very easy for us as an audience to be like, well, just pick up and leave. Like, this is terrible. Get out of here. But the fact that, like, this is this is kind of their last chance to be free and to be independent. And I like that we have that Independence Day celebration to kind of frame that for us. Yeah, it, it's funny because, I mean, I've seen this movie a number of times. And every time, about halfway through, I, I have the exact same thought. It's like, why are you people doing this to yourselves? Right. Like, like, is this worth it? And it's like, but, you know. It's right after the Civil War, like the eastern yep. part of the United States is still very much torn and it's hard to find work. It's like it's and this was the Homestead Act was a huge thing to so many people to try to, you know, get out there and start start new, basically. Yep. And and this was unfortunately an all too common sort of occurrence in history for this this era of, you know, ranchers and cattle barons not wanting people moving in on land that they had free range on. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only scene, like if I was kind of rewriting this or updating it, the only scene I would kind of trim is this funeral sequence. Um, because I think it's necessary because it, especially when we're talking about our theme of, uh, of community, like that's, that's where they kind of all kind of agree to take their stand. But like that, when the funeral happens, this movie screeches to a halt for about five or 10 minutes. And if you would just tighten that up and you can still have the same dialogue at the end of it, but I found myself kind of like, you know, tapping my fingers, being like, okay, let's, let's move forward during that sequence because, and and it shouldn't be like that. You should care. This, this character who we care at least a little about has died because he's kind of a hothead and we have Jack Palance's character showing up. Do do we care about him though? Or or is he just eh. like a plot device to further the evilness of Jack Palance? Yeah. I mean, he's a little bit of a plot device. Um, but I think he's in this movie, I think he's, He's symbolic of the fact that none of these people can say can say or do what they really want. Um, and the second they do, they're gunned down, you know, in, the, in his case, literally. So it's sad. It's not as if it's it would be it's not as if Joe died. If Joe died, that would be a big blow to this movie. And he is a little bit of a disposable character, but it's kind of a plot device, not only for Jack Palance's evilness, but for our characters to get to a point where, no, we have to take a stand here. Yeah, I- I, th- I think I agree with what you're saying. It was more so uh, the character himself. People weren't like, sure. oh, Stonewall got shot and like they're sad about it. It was more so like these people are so invested in specifically the 4th of July is what they're celebrating. And, right. and like it's just that that moment of they get to celebrate. We're in America. We're free. We're, you know, starting our lives. And his death is the symbol, of, you know, the symbol of, no, you're still being repressed, even though you've come out here and the government says you can have this land. There are still all these barriers and, you know, you're not free, essentially, yet anyway. And uh, it is. It's, it's, it's very symbolic. And, but I'm, as I'm thinking about, like, what can you trim down? As, you know, we were talking earlier about fleshing out some of these other storylines and stuff. Because we're, we're looking at a two-hour runtime as yeah. it is. 
And I don't think it feels like two hours. I think it, it, it moves along at a pretty good pace. It does, yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty much up to the point you said. And, you know, if they cut, you know, the 10, 15 minutes out of, of funeral time and post-funeral, is that enough to flesh out some of the other stories? Maybe. Uh, right. At least enough to, you know, to take some of the strain off of Alan Ladd, at least. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing I've written down is the kind of choice at the end of this film to have kind of Shane take the ball. Um like you have that fist fight scene that you talked about. Um, and I really like that because I didn't see it coming necessarily. I saw it as, as an option, as a direction the film could go. Cause I think that's something that's interesting about having a main character and someone we're following who is not verbose. He's not someone who's going to talk a lot and tell you what steps he's going to take. So when he does kind of take that step to take the fall for all these people he's just met, I think it's actually really moving and a really powerful moment in the, in the film. Yeah, and I th- and I think I mean obviously we're we're in spoiler territory here, yeah. but if you haven't seen this since it came out, I uh, don't really know what to tell you. Yeah, um, spoilers for but, 1957, but uh... but yeah, <laughs> you, you get the the scene with the very first bar fight, and uh, you know the little boy comes out, hey, they're killing Shane, they're killing Shane, and uh, Van Heflin runs in there with the axe handle, <laughs> and yeah. you get some of the cheesiest and like most amazing camera work in the film when you get those really tight shots on his face as he's getting ready to hit somebody with an ax handle. <laughs> and I'm glad there's only like two or three in the movie. Cause otherwise it would be eye rolling, but like, I love those so much when I rewatch this. <laughs> um, but then, you know, right after that, they're back to back, you know, sorting, ho- sort of holding off the, the cattle barons men as they, you know, fist fight around this bar. And I think when you're watching this first time, you realize, you know, that the showdown, the climax is coming and you you kind of go back to that and like well that's that's going to happen you know them back to back against the world so to speak right. and it's a it's a really unexpected turn that I think plays really well with the audience because it uh, while you're on the fence about Shane kind of his loyalties for most of the film that really solidifies him as the hero instead of just your anti-hero and uh and it is really well done yeah, and I think that that kind of that fist fight between our two main characters really solidifies him not only as an as a hero but a true anti-hero in this film because he has to essentially beat the hell out of the only person who's really been a friend to him in order for him to be able to walk in town without shame and for Shane to be able to take care of this himself as he wants to. So I, I really like that moment. And he has to cheat to do it. So it's like yep. he's got to get his hands a little dirty to beat his friend up yep. in order to save his life. It's a it's a there's a lot going on uh, plot wise in in those two scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about the script that really surprised me and you kind of brought it up is how how quickly this movie moves along, because most movies, honestly, if we're going to talk about movies from the 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, usually for modern uh, filmgoers, there's a pacing issue. But I didn't really feel that here, other than the scene we talked about, that funeral sequence. The rest of the movie really moves along really well, especially for a two-hour-long movie. So I was really impressed uh, with the screenplay. Yeah, and, and you can run into some of the older westerns. Like, I know I mentioned uh, the 310 to Yuma, which also has Van Heflin in it. And I, I still prefer the original to the update uh, with Russell Crowe and Christian Bale. But it it has some pacing issues as well. You get the scenes where like they're sitting in the hotel waiting for the train, and there's not a lot of meat to it, uh, and it and it kind of drags. And for this to kind of precede some of that stuff, uh, I, I was really surprised that the pacing holds up rather well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as production value, I was surprised that. Uh, that this wasn't worse, I guess, as far as production value. Anytime you pick up these movies, these older movies, there's usually one or two sequences where you're like, oh man, this is, this is rough to watch because it all looks so fake. And then I, again, did a little bit of research and apparently they built this whole town from scratch. Like there's no facades used. They just, they just actually built all these buildings as they would during that time. So I think that's the reason that I think this movie from a production value really holds up. Like the saloon is a real building. The farm is a real farm. And I think at some level we kind of feel that as viewers during this movie. Yeah, I think so. I think it's um, a kind of high plains drifter esque mm. in the way the town makes you, you kind of get immersed in it and you know, you, you kind of feel like you're there and you're not on a set to some extent. And, and I think, you know, like you said, they, they built this from nothing and it paid off in the long run. I know it probably pushed that, that budget up a little bit for the fifties. Uh, but I think, I think in the, in the, 
in the end, it was worth it because it's it's obviously kind of stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially there's a there's a scene where uh, uh, where Joe and Shane are removing a tree stump uh, from from their farm. And as I was watching this, I'm like, this looks real. This doesn't look like, I mean, I think if you made this now, they would just kind of, uh, they would build it, you know, out of paper mache and hollow it out. And then we just pretend like it was real effort. But I think you can see that effort in those sequences. And I think that that lends itself to kind of the reality of this movie instead of like, oh, we're going to pretend like we're straining and move this. Like you can really see these two kind of bonding and working together. And I think those scenes are actually really important for what Shane ends up doing by the end of the film. Yeah, although I do love that they had such uh, an emphasis on when they were moving that (laughs) stump. Like, first of all, I wonder if they actually had to, like, cut that stump out. (laughs) Like you said, it seems pretty legit. Yeah, it does. But then I love at the very end when they have that fight scene before Shane goes to town, what do they end up leaning against? It's that same damn stump that they've (laughs) never moved after they got it out of the ground. It sits there for the whole movie. And they're like, nope, that was enough. Well, we'll take care of it at a later date. Like, the hard work is done. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. So before we jump to favorite scenes, I was wondering just in general what you thought of the very end of this film, where it's – I mean, I think it's a little bit – it's it's a little bit vague as far as what happens to Shane. So – I mean, I, I take the tack of I think like this is Shane's last stand, and as he's leaving, he's dying. Um, but what about you? What did you think of the way they ended the film? Yeah, I mean that's a it's a pretty iconic debate on whether or not Shane dies at the end of this movie. And no one that that I've seen, and I've looked a little bit, has confirmed yes he was dead, yes he wasn't. He's clearly been shot. Right. Uh, you know, you've got the limping in the saddle, and it's like, does he live to fight another day? Uh, more often than not, I fall in, in the same court with you there. Like, I think this is kind of his last hurrah. I think the speech that he gave to the cattle baron right before the gunfight ensued. Yeah, the uh, the know, kind of say, we're done. Like, yeah, this world is over. over. There's no more place for us here. He's like, I've just accepted it. And so I think that was his acceptance of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can debate if it was... Uh, kind of the an appropriate way for him to go out getting sort of shot in the back from the balcony. Uh, but he, I think he was okay with it as, as a character. Uh, so I, I kind of just tend to give him the benefit of the doubt based upon his speech that, you know, he was okay with this. So we should be too, as an audience. Yeah, absolutely. I think honestly, in a lot of ways, that speech and that ending really makes the movie for me. Like up until this point, I think it's, it's a little uneven. It's a good Western, you know, it's, it's fun. It's, it's an enjoyable watch. But I think that speech about like kind of the passage of time and things changing and we need to move on and him kind of ending with his death, I think is, that's the thing that tips this over into great Western as, as, as opposed to good Western. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I, I would have to go back and look at actual movies uh, in this era. You know, 53, I believe this one came out in. But I don't think there was anything else like this. You're not used right. to seeing the the hero die on yeah. screen. Uh, and so it, it, it stood out in that regard. But then, it, you know, it's a few years going by until, you know, John Wayne has a couple movies where he dies in. And then that was kind of a big thing, too. Right. Uh to uh, to date, I don't think Clint Eastwood actually dies in any of his westerns. Uh, so yeah, it's, it wasn't uh, a common occurrence, especially in this genre. It was very sort of rare. Yeah, absolutely. I find it also interesting. At the beginning of this episode, we uh, we talked about the kind of inception of this episode, Shane talking about Shane. But this also has one of those endings, like Inception does, where I think you can read it either way, and I think it makes it it makes for an interesting discussion, no matter which way you go. I don't think if I think if Shane lives, I think it's still it's still an interesting discussion. It's still a good it's still a good to great movie. I don't think that kind of takes away from it necessarily. I like that you. if you were to have this debate, you can literally go from the end of the movie and go from conversation to conversation and then find different things to support that mm-hmm. he is or isn't going to make it. Uh, you know, he's having the conversation uh, with Gene Arthur there right before he rides into town. And she's like, oh, we're never going to see you again. You know, which would allude to the fact that maybe he did die at the end. But he's like, never's a long time. And it's like, oh, so maybe right. maybe Shane hung on there. And at some point in the future, uh, it's just really... I think really well written mm-hmm. uh, in that you can kind of, you know, just keep hooking back to, to prior dialogue and, and 
supporting any argument you want to make about the end of the movie, even though there's you know no actual tangible evidence to to say one way or the other. Right. And I think really you bring this up, but that's the mark of a great screenplay, right? That you can, if you have one of these vague moments that can go either way and you can actually support it with material from the movie and there's no pure answer here. Uh, And I I really like that about Shane. So, so that really works. All right. Uh, So what's one of your favorite scenes from Shane? Favorite scenes. I I like this one and it's, and it's sort of, for the the cheese factor, but it's uh I think the one you alluded to earlier when the the cattle baron and his men first show up at uh Joe Starrett's house and you know they trample through the garden and all this and uh, as an audience you think Shane has already left he's already left the farm of his own accord which that scene is great as well in the way the dialogue plays out but then he comes back around the corner of the house and just kind of leans there behind the the farmer and his family you know without them knowing it and it was it's a it's a mixture between like cheesy and like james dean cool and i'm not sure where it falls in the (laughs) middle area but i really I, i like that scene yeah i think that scene is a really difficult balance and i think it says a lot about lad's kind of screen persona in that moment because i think you put a lot of people in that same sequence and it dips too far into cheesy but i think he still comes off as like you said, as that kind of James Dean cool in in that moment, and that and that's not nothing, you know. So I I really liked his performance there. I think my favorite scene we talked about a little bit is this fist fight between our two main characters, and I think there's you know there's of course not a lot of dialogue in that scene, but there's so much going on between kind of these four characters. Like we have the idea that you know Shane you know doesn't want to do this. Like I don't think he has any desire to hurt his friend, but he knows he has to kind of in order to save his life and the life, the life of this family that he's got to kind of, he's got to, he's got to take this guy out. Even if, even if they're friends and then you have, you know, the, the kind of the wife looking on and she's not sure what to think or what to do and she can't fix this. And then you've got the child watching this too. And for a split second near the end of this fight, thinking Shane is evil and needing kind of his his mother's guidance in that moment to kind of say like like no kind of this is the adult world and it's things aren't so black and white there's a lot of gray area here and i thought with a minimal amount of dialogue they did a really efficient job of kind of getting all this across just physically i'm going to channel my inner michael deniston here and tell you how that scene could have been better dave okay tell me. that kid <laughs> needed to have another candy cane like when he was watching that first bar fight <laughs> And they just kept panning back to him as he crunched another bite of this candy cane. I cackle, physically cackle every time I watch that first fight at that kid and his candy cane. It's pretty ridiculous. They they go back to him like six times during the course of this fist fight. And I don't know why. I don't know what purpose it serves. Yeah, I can't. I think it's the it's the only eye rolling uh, moment of the movie for me. And I was just like. Were things just that different in the 50s? Like, was this scene as dramatic? Because it was just like, it was almost like the kid was doing Foley work for the punches in that moment. Like, I'm just going to crunch on this right when they punch. And it it's kind of it's kind of upsetting because the rest of that scene is great. Like, that mm-hmm. fight scene is fantastic. Like, there's a couple cheesy moments, but I love how long that fight scene goes on. And I love that, again, we talked about kind of Alan Ladd not being your prototypical western lead the fact that you know he walks up to the bar and orders a soda pop instead of a whiskey and that of course like has everyone kind of turn on him because like how dare you come into this bar and not drink and i i love that moment and i love that fight but yeah that kid in the candy cane that's that's problematic at best but you know it was a long scene because he got through most of that candy cane like he was doing work (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know uh you know, eating a candy cane is, is not – it's not a quick enterprise. Like that's going to take a while. So that fight must have been going on for like hours. Like, for him to Either that or they – like I, I hope to God they didn't. But like the props department just has different leaf candy canes ready to hand him for the next scene. <laughs> like here you go. we got to make this look just real. shaving but, yeah. it down. Like yeah. <laughs> here's the next bite. Yeah. Oh, man, that kid. Um yeah, and I also I also really liked as we talked about kind of that Independence Day uh sequence. I think that stuff really works and I think it's it I could see someone going like, "Oh, we could just cut this. It's not really necessary." But I think it's so necessary so you have like we already talked about Alan Ladd doing all the work, but I think if you don't have moments like this, we don't know what we're fighting for and we don't know why this is important. I think that really hammers it home. Yeah, those I mean those are the scenes that allow us to talk about this movie 60 years later. 
on on a podcast like yours where you're delving into the plot and you know the theme of the movie like those feed so much into that even though it's not the most entertaining scenes like they're so necessary for this movie to be as impactful as it is yeah i'm sure that helps alan ladd and george stevens rest easy like thank god we kept that in there because now we could talk about it on pop culture case study they've really yeah. they've really made it so that's I, I like to think alan ladd looks down at this and he's like i should have hit the kid with a brick yes like that, that's his <laughs> final parting thought when he, he you know he's looking at his legacy you missed your opportunity mr ladd that that would have made for a memorable hollywood story for sure yeah. all I right mean, this was 53 that wouldn't even been a blip on the, be the like, seventh yeah, page or something it happens <laughs> Yeah, kid got hit with a brick. Hey, shouldn't have been sassy. Yeah, That's you know. right. Shouldn't have been making faces at the Hollywood star. That's what happened. Although I wonder how many people in Hollywood have, would have immediately assumed it was Jack Palance. Like, That's what happens <laughs> when you work with Jack. That's <laughs> right. If I was Ellen Ladd, I would immediately pin that on I mean, look at Jack Palance. Yeah. The man is Nobody's clearly say, evil. Those baby blue eyes. Like, oh, no, Ellen Ladd, you would never do that. <laughs> who would even, you know, who would even insinuate that that's possible? Just pin it on yeah. Jack Palance. All right. Uh, so I gave you the theme of kind of the importance of community. So how do you think that tied in uh, to Shane? Uh, I don't know. So you get you always have a huge community theme going with the farmers and everything. And I think he's that guy who has never had that feeling. He's never had that sense of community or belonging. Mm. Uh and I, and I think the big turning point for his character and this, it's a sort of a silly throwback is when they ask him to stay for dinner. Like yep. that's the first moment where his character, you, you kind of get this look and, you know, he gets the feeling that he can, he can belong here. Like he's never been invited to sort of put down roots <laughs> and it's like, you know, stay for dinner. Like, you know, I'll, he gives him a job. Like you can work here. Like we appreciate you. You know, he apologizes for trying to kind of force him off of his land rudely you know, showing him the gun wasn't loaded and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think that is the scene where you get the buy-in that, you know, Shane wants this. He wants a sense of community and a sense of belonging. And this is kind of his chance. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a really important point. Like I think as, as I watch this movie, I try, you keep trying to kind of imagine like, okay, who is Shane before this? You know, because all we know is how he is here in this, in this little homestead. And it, it just makes you think like what a lonely existence that must have been for someone to just, you know, offer him a little bit of meat and some biscuits. And he's just like bonded to these people kind of for life. And it's it's kind of it's very bittersweet at the end of this film that he essentially gives up everything for this community. You know, depending on how you view the film, he gives up his life for this community, something he can never really have. And he knows that. And I think he even knows that when he sits down to dinner It's like this is not really for me. Like, this yep. is very kind of them, and I appreciate it, and I want to take part, but I know eventually this is going to come back around, and, you know, my time is over, as as the movie kind of puts in, in that final speech, that, like, there's no more room for me. So it is really, like, just looking back at the movie, it's really, like, not even bittersweet. There's not that much sweet. It's just, it's a really sad story for Shane. Like, he does the right thing, but he can never have, you know, kind of the benefits of it. Yeah, and I think they do a good job, uh, again, with the writing. I think this movie is, is written excellently in this screenplay. I've never read the book, and it's it's one of those things, I know the book's almost always better, but I don't know if I want the book to be better, right. because I enjoy the, the screenplay of this so much. And it's it's the same scene I mentioned earlier, where he's getting ready to ride into town, and he's talking to the wife, uh, and after you know he she asks, are you doing this just for me, and you get the kind of yes, I'm doing this for you, long pause. And then he, he, he goes into, you know, I'm doing it for Joe. I'm doing it for little Joe. I'm doing it for all the farmers. And it's, it's, I felt like it's his way of saying, you know, I'm willing to give up everything for this idea of what I know I'll never be able to have. But like, I just like that idea that much. Like yeah. I, I, I wanted this so much and I know I can't, but if I can enable other people to have that sense of community and belonging, uh, you know, that's good enough. Yeah, I think uh, the only other scene I kind of wanted to talk to you about, I was wondering kind of your take on it. There's a there's a sequence where one of the people who lives on the homestead has had enough and they're packing up all their stuff and they're about to leave. Kind of and this is right before the funeral happens. And the the rest of the community kind of comes together kind of in opposition to this person trying to save the life of his own life and the life of his family. So what did you think about the community kind of trying to pull people back in? 
I mean, I understand it to an extent, right? Because if you're in this scenario, it's kind, it's kind of like, I'm sure you're probably familiar, it's like the twig comparison, right? You pick up a twig, you snap it, it's not a big deal. Hmm. You pick up 10 of them and you try to snap it, and you can't. And so, you know, if you're that, that bundle of twigs or, you know, these, these individuals in a homestead that are individually weak, uh, but you've all kind of banded together, and that's what has enabled you to survive this long, you know, if you start taking twigs out of that bundle, it's only a matter of time before they snap. And I think that's what they were trying to convey to the audience is that it's not that they didn't understand why he wanted to leave. It was that they needed him to stay for the good of everybody else. Or otherwise, you're going to get a trickle effect. The next yeah. thing that happens, somebody else leaves and then so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this is a movie I'm actually, you know, I'm really glad I finally watched it. It's been one of those movies that I've been meaning to watch for a long time and it's it's a really good western. Like I I really enjoyed it. I think it still works even for modern filmgoers. So, I would definitely recommend people checking it out if they've got a spare couple hours. All right, so the last thing we need to talk about is the movie we're tying this into, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, is is Logan, is our kind of newest uh, movie in the kind of X-Men franchise uh, for Fox, but it's it seems to be many, many years later, and like it, it does, when I first watched the trailer, I was like, this feels like a Western. Like, this feels like one man against the world, you know, and the fact that he's trying to take care of this kid. Uh, and we've got, of course, Patrick Stewart coming back, uh, playing Professor X again. Uh, it kind of, it seems like being a little bit of his, uh, his conscience in this movie of like, this is, this is why we do what we do. So are you excited about seeing Logan? Uh, so I'm hesitant to say that because I, I share my, my co-host sentiments about Marvel movies to the, for most, for the to most extent here. Uh, but yeah, something about the Logan trailers, man. And maybe it is that they, they kind of feel kind of a throwback to Westerns and you have the Johnny cash music on most of the trailers. And, uh, I'm, I'm more excited for this than I want to be. Like, I feel <laughs> like I'm setting myself up for disappointment and it's like, I'm, I'm not sure it can hit my expectations at this point because it's my, you know, it's just it's gotten better with each of the trailers that I've seen. Yeah. And anytime we're talking about a, a Marvel content here that scares me to death um so I, I guess i will reserve judgment but yeah I'm, I'm i'm in that that bandwagon where like i am pulling for logan to just be amazing right yeah it sounds like you're kind of in the same place i am when every comic book movie comes out because in my yeah. opinion i don't feel like like generally speaking i don't feel like comic book movies have gotten any worse i just feel like there's so much of the same going on that i get less and less impressed it's like just these diminishing returns because i'm like yeah i watched that movie already like 6 years ago i don't really need to watch that again but this and one and they were all called spider-man let's watch <laughs> the origin story again each and every yeah. one of them again and you yeah. got another one of those to look forward to so get hyped for that but yeah this trailer did really did really hit me and i was like you know i couldn't even tell you why but i just have a good feeling about this one like this feels like it's got its heart in the right place and it's you know it's uh it looks like a more violent uh wolverine movie it's actually rated r so we get to kind of you know take the gloves off in this one so i'm actually really looking forward to it kind of like you said kind of against against everything i know <laughs> against my brain i'm still yeah. looking forward to this for sure yeah, this is one of those you see the little cartoons where the brain and the heart are at the crossroads. Yes. And the, the brain goes one way and the heart goes the other and the brain's looking back. No, you know better. Come back. And it's like, but it's already too late. He's already started down that road. So I'm just, I'm going to have to hope for the best. Uh, and, and I can't help but wonder if it's, if it's the tie-in with the kid with, you know, you kind of your old surly Wolverine character. Uh, not even remotely the same kind of film, but like St. Vincent that came out a couple years ago. Right. Uh, you know, you get the kid and you, you know, he kind of wins over the grumpy old man in Bill Murray and like, it's an endearing kind of ride. And in this one, we just get violence with it. And that always makes it better. That's right. Violence <laughs> makes the medicine go down a little bit easier. Yeah. That's nice. All right. Uh, so one more time before you go, why don't you tell people, uh, where they can hear War Machine versus Warhorse or how they can contact you online? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can find us on Facebook, and it's just War Machine versus War Horse, uh, and you can find us on Twitter at War Machine Horse. Uh, we're pretty pretty good about replying to our tweets and things of that nature. If you want to drop a DM in, uh, it's probably going to be calling you an idiot because we won't agree with you. But hey, take a chance. All right, everyone, thanks for listening to another episode. I really appreciate it. 
If you'd like to connect with the show or help out the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. Of course, you can just keep listening and tell your friends about the show because we always want a bigger audience. Or you can go to followingfilms.com and listen to other great movie podcasts like The Best and Worst of the Best and War Machine vs. Warhorse. Or you can follow me on Twitter at PCK Study. But the best way to help out is if you have a little bit of extra money, you can actually donate on a per episode basis to our show. There's a great website called Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And on that website, you can actually donate to us. So if you go to patreon.com slash study, you can donate as little as a dollar an episode. You can set a monthly cap so it never gets out of control and get some great rewards. So it's a really good way to support an independent podcast. All right. So next time you hear my voice, we will be doing a new release review on Logan. Still don't know who the co-host is going to be because Mike is still off jet setting around the world in Europe. So he won't be here. But, you know, uh, we'll still be here hopefully doing an episode on Logan. And Britt will be watching a classic Western called The Searchers. All right. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Nice. All right. I really appreciate it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking about that movie. And it, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I asked Mike, like, who do you know that likes Westerns? And he was like, well, what's the movie? And then I said, it said Shane. And I, all I got back was ha 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 ha. And I was <laughs> like, you're thinking of Shane, aren't you? And he was like, yeah, there's like no other choice. This is, yeah. This is the perfect pairing. So well, it's funny because like I'll look at like I'll Google a list of like best westerns of all time, and like I have to go like sixty movies deep on this before I find something I haven't seen. Like it's. <laughs> uh...